Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. We made it. Made we traveled it. some 4,000 miles through nine <laughs> different states, interviewed 13 people, and now we are back in the Sandbox studio in Northwest Rochester, Minnesota. I cannot believe we pulled it off. Me either. I... It was a lot of miles. <laughs> it was a lot of miles. And even like our crazy Vegas uh, story, I mean, when I think of that, it's just going to blow people's minds. <laughs> we'll save that for later. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, so while we were gone, we talked with our friends Mark and Haley Scandrett about their new work. Uh, we connected with activists in San Francisco Bay Area about gun violence and civil rights. We caught up with New York Times bestseller Rob Bell and had a conversation with him about failure and rejection. We also met up with the doctors at CD Health in Turlock, California, and talked about holistic care for the mind, body, and spirit. And seriously, this just scratches the surface. We met so many ridiculously talented and interesting people, and we can't wait to share these conversations with you in the months to come. Honestly, one of my favorite parts was hearing from all of you on social media as we made our way across the country. It was so much fun, Chris, as we were going and we could just kind of check in and hear what people were, were thinking and how they were interacting with our work. And we are building this sandbox community every day, and we are so glad to have you as part of it. Absolutely. And we can't wait to share with you all that we learned and the great conversations we had. But for now, welcome to episode 22 of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast, Life in Real Time, Part 2. Welcome to the Sandbox. As we said last time, we set out to do one episode on the end of life and death, but we ended up with two episodes about abundance and life. We connected with Seasons Hospice, a community-based, freestanding, nonprofit hospice here in Rochester, Minnesota. They provide end-of-life care for patients in their own home, as well as at their residential hospice facility. Care is provided regardless of the religion or spirituality of the patient or family. In addition to end-of-life care, they provide education for the broader community, which is part of why we are bringing this episode to you. In this episode, we're excited to introduce you to three people we met. Bereavement specialist Heidi Smith, music therapist Julie Zamaki, and as we begin, you'll hear the voice of Executive Director Beverly Haynes. Um, my name is Beverly Haynes, and I'm the Executive Director of Seasons. I actually started um, working for the company in um, 1997 as a call nurse, so I, I, my um, trade is a nurse, that's my background, and then okay. I have done many roles, so now I am the director. We have um, been in business since 1996, and we're actually celebrating our 20th year of providing care nice. in Southeast Minnesota this year, so we're pretty proud of that. Um, we really focus on um, providing quality care for patients, um, and our focus also is on educating the community in end-of-life care and what hospice can do for patients at end-of-life and how, they can, how it can be so helpful for people. Um, Seasons Hospice provides care and support to patients, whatever the patient or family's religion or spirituality. And I think that's an important concept mm -hmm. for people to understand with Seasons Hospice. The other thing that's very unique about hospice is um, it's, it's not your typical, typical medical model where the patient is the unit of care, it's really the patient and the family that's our mm -hmm. unit of care. The other part about hospice is that it's a team approach, it's an interdisciplinary team. Hospice care is holistic care and it 
allows using a team to provide that care mm. it really allows us to take care of the whole person spiritually emotionally and physically and whatever the symptoms are that that patient is having we're able to help with that mm. and that's kind of a unique thing not only in the the medical industry in some way but also in 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 our culture in a lot of ways there are a lot of p- places where we don't we don't necessarily see the whole picture in a way of, well, what are all of the variables that are maybe contributing to the way this person is feeling or the things they're experiencing? Um, so you're kind of a pioneer, not only in medical realms, but also uh, in the way that we approach kind of the way we see other people too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is your time working in hospice and, and maybe particularly here? Um, what has that taught you about uh, end of life and that experience with a person and their family? You know, it's a real privilege to be present with someone in the end of life. Um, there are several things I've learned. Um, one one thing I share often with people is that it's a very intimate time in somebody's life, and you really, our staff becomes involved um, very deeply with people to be able to provide the care that they need and mm-hmm. help them reach whatever whatever goals that they have. Um, I think personally, I've learned to become present, um, be present in the moment and really focus on what's happening now and and not not worry about 10 minutes from now, but really mm-hmm. think about what's happening now. The other thing um, for me is I'm able to see that there's truly a seed of blessing in every situation. Mm-hmm. And it it may take us a while to see what that the fruit of that seed is. But I, I truly believe that there is a seed of mm-hmm. something that'll be wonderful at some point in time. And most families that participate in the end-of-life care that their that their loved one is going through truly see that later. And it, it might be right away that they see it. It might be a few days later. It might be weeks later. It might be a year later. But I, I really believe it's a gift that people can give to their loved one to be present and and there with them through end of life. Bev talks about the importance of pausing and being present. As people accompany loved ones at the end of life, I have to believe this can be a difficult thing. Speaking in broad you know, societal terms, in everyday life, it seems we spend a good deal of time being distracted, racing from one thing to the next, not present to what is right in front of us. And all of a sudden, things change. A loved one is dying, and we are reminded, be there, be present, just be. I think this is a hard skill to employ without much practice. But maybe this is where music comes in. Music can be a tool, a vehicle, a way to stop the mind and heart from racing and be present, open to where someone is at the moment, here and now. My name's Julie Zamaki, and I'm the music therapist at Seasons Hospice. What does it mean to do music therapy? Well, I think my simplest definition is to think of using music in a therapeutic relationship to achieve non-music goals. So Mm. let's say you're a music therapist working in a school setting with um, an autistic child. Well, the goals there might be socialization or turn-taking or... Uh, language development and so you'd use music as your tool to help all those things along and in hospice the goals are very different the goals are more about quality of life um, 
quality of life enhancement. Uh, but they might include things like helping someone through a pain episode, helping someone through shortness of breath. A lot of times it's just about having a really good time together mm. during a challenging time of life through mm. music. Through music. Yeah. I feel like I'm about to ask a question that you can't answer, uh, but maybe you can. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to give it a shot. What is it about music? What is it about music? It is connected in our brains. We People, neurologists say we are wired for music as human beings. We, we take it in. We process it through our emotional center of our brain. It motivates our movement. It hits on our emotions. It connects us with our, our relationships with others and our history. So it's so wonderfully, it so wonderfully ties us in with, um, with our world. It uses our whole brain. So mm. if someone's lost a big chunk of functionality in their brain, music might still be the, the inroads to being with somebody. You know, a great example of that is someone who has Alzheimer's disease and maybe can't hold a conversation, but could sing with you and really enjoy it. Um, I, I, I've seen the movie Alive Inside. Oh, Have you good. seen that? Yeah. I mean, it, and for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's it's you know the Alzheimer's patients who, you know, when when an iPod and a and some headphones are put on, it connects with a different part of their their memory, and and they're able to connect with the music and even though there's other memories that and they don't seem to be able to connect with anymore. And it's just mm-hmm. a, a beautiful, beautiful film. And, mm-hmm. and have you witnessed uh, stuff like that? Yeah, it's kind of a direct connect. You know, there's, there's no barrier, really. The music goes in, and then mm. there's kind of an immediate response. Um, and it's different for every single person. It's different for every single neurologic scenario, you might imagine, you know, everyone's neurologically different and how they can receive uh, stimulus would be different but mm-hmm. um, oh my goodness I've seen people who cannot hold a, a conversation and what that means is they're isolated so they're just by themselves with their heads down most of the day um, and if you are to join them with music in some way singing with them I can think of any number of people who will just lift their head up put on a perfect beautiful harmony which is something that I can't do but (laughs) they do their auto alto or whatever it is and just glorious and they're right there someone I was with just a week ago she was in bed she did not say hello when I greeted her she just kept sleeping and had her eyes closed and I just gently joined her with one of her favorite songs and (laughs) she just started singing along in her sleep Another day I was with her, and she just picked her head up, smiled, and you know just went right with it on on the verse. So it's, yeah, I do see that quite quite often. Yeah. Could you imagine being there in that moment? Someone who is virtually unresponsive lights up, is animated, a gift that would have been missed if you weren't present and focused and in the moment. It's remarkable how powerful music can be. It allows us to connect at a soul level with a person in a way that may have been impossible before. In a season where a loved one is dying, so much care is given to the patient, and it can be easy to forget that there is a whole community of people who are grieving and struggling as a result. We can be present and attentive to the one who is dying, but we need to be present to our own pain as well. My name is Heidi Smith, and I'm the Director of Bereavement Services here at Seasons. 
Director of Bereavement Services. So what does that mean? Good question. Most people wonder what in the world bereavement is. So here at Seasons, we obviously deal with our patients who are in hospice and their families. And once that individual has died, bereavement takes over. And so we do follow up with families. And that involves, we follow up by phone calls after the death within the first 10 days. Uh, We send mailings. Um, We send a yellow rose to the family or to the facility where their loved one had been. Mm. We also um, offer grief support groups. And those groups meet at a variety of times. We provide coffees. And those are open to the community. Um, It's a, a time of support and grief education, but it's also a time for socializing where hopefully Mm. those people are building um, community within here that they can take outside of our walls. We have a newly bereaved group and that's for everybody who's very fresh in their grief, um, zero to four months out. And we offer those both during the day and evening hours. And those are hard groups. I see people pull in our parking lot and pull right back out because they're just not ready to talk yet. We provide a pregnancy and infant loss support group. Those are hard groups too. And yet this group of women and their support come in and uh, they bond at a a different level. And uh, we get to see photos and memory boxes and really just uh, share and honor the memory of that little one. those are are beautiful groups and we have a group of women who have been involved for a few years who come back to continue supporting those who are very fresh in their grief Um, and then we also have a pet loss group and that group meets once a month and I have people who've driven down from the cities to be in that group because Mm -hmm. not everybody acknowledges the loss of a pet and how meaningful that can be and so I get to share in that as well would it be fair to say that you are on some level community organizing, uh, organizing community around this idea that people are, are, are grieving and, and are able to support one another in that and build something stronger? That is a great question, and that's really part of my heartbeat here. Yeah. Um, to be able to do grief education. You know, a hundred years ago, if someone in your family died, you'd wear black for up to a year, right? And your door would Mm -hmm. be marked with black and your clock would be draped in black and stopped at that time. And now you get three to five days bereavement, whether it's in school or at work, and you're expected to go back and be fully functioning. And I'm really hoping through educating the public on grief that you are, your whole being has been assaulted to a degree, right? You, we are biopsychosocial, spiritual beings. All of that is affected through death. And you, your brain chemistry is different, right? It's altered through this trauma. And so your short-term memory is affected. Um, your ability to make decisions, your ability to complete a task. I have people who say they put their laundry detergent in the refrigerator or they never can find, you know, they couldn't find their keys before and now it's like an insurmountable task. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, physically, we always ask, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Um, grief will cause heart palpitations and sweaty palms and all these reactions that people think do i need to go to the er am i having a heart attack or a stroke and it's like no it's 
grief. You know, you are so affected. Or they think, is this early onset dementia because of, you know, I can't remember a thing. And they're expected to be able to wade through the insurmountable paperwork that now is taking place. And, you know, I needed five death certificates because the cable guy needed a death certificate to turn off my cable. And so because the cable guy yes. needs it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, let alone if, you know, they mixed up our social security. So they cut off my social security instead of my spouse's. And, you know, and you're, you're, again, your memory is so altered at this time. And yet you're making huge decisions. And it, it can just be overwhelming. And when we sit in group and we hear these statements and people start shaking their heads, yes, I am not alone. You mean you had that happen too? Well, have you had your your loved one call you? Because some telemarketers will use this application or whatever where their call system, it looks like it's coming from your house. So here this poor widow is sitting in her living room and up on caller ID comes her late husband's name. Yeah. You know, yeah. and if only he would be calling me. Yeah. But no, it's a telemarketer. I've never thought thought of that. I've I've gotten calls from my wife with our home number on it. And it was the telemarketer. And it was the telemarketer. I never thought about that in terms of having a, a, a loss. Oh. And it, it can be devastating. Oh, wow. You know, and, and I try, you know, as part of grief education, you think if, you know, I use like a Venn diagram, right? So two circles intersecting. Yeah. And if that was your relationship with your loved one, and now that piece of you is missing. And if okay. that wound... Well, we know that wound's on our spirit, right? If you could see that wound, if it were on your arm, and you could vis visibly see it, and you would see, you know, it looks a little irritated today, or it looks a little better today, or, oh, it's infected. You know, if other people could see that as well, they would treat you differently. Yeah. But no, you're expected to function, and most people will come up and say, how are you doing today? And what are you going to say? Fine. Fine, because that's what they want to hear, because yeah. then they don't feel awkward and they know how to respond to you. And so most people put that, that mask on mm -hmm. and they say, I'm fine. And inside they're, they're screaming, thinking, I am anything but fine. And this group offers an opportunity for people to share. Powerful image. Grief is this open wound. It takes a chunk out of you emotionally and spiritually. And even though you are missing a key part of who and what you are, the pain can be invisible to the naked eye. And yet, the pain is nevertheless very real, in need of intentional care, or it can get infected. As I was talking with Bev, she said that a key aspect of hospice is education. I asked what she wanted people to know and be educated about with regard to end of life. A lot of what of our, our experiences are is what we're seeing on TV or something like that, you know, and, um, someone you know goes into the ER with this horrible disease or horrible event and then they're shocked once and they're back up and you know eating in the chair the next day or something I mean that's not reality of, mm -hmm. of life so um, normalizing death from what we really see um, what what path someone would be on um, 
you know, I keep saying that my terms always are conversations that matter, that kitchen table conversation, the um, when you're together with your your parents or your siblings or whomever, um, that you have, if you have strong feelings or if you have ideas of how you would like your end of life to go. Because we all think of seniors or elderly people, um, but it could happen to any of us at any point mm-hmm. in time. So. Um, having those conversations again you know do you want to be an organ donor if something happens do you um do you want to be kept alive with a tube feeding or on a ventilator you know do you want to be resuscitated if you have a chronic illness and there's really no hope of of cure um it how realistic is that resuscitation um advanced directives again do a few things for you. It gives you the tool that you need to be able to um, document what your wishes are, but it also brings up areas of conversation to have with those people that will be making those decisions for you when you no longer can make those decisions. So um, educating patients and families too about what hospice care can do for end of life, how it can really be beneficial Mm -hmm. that you have that team available to you, that you have a nurse and a physician and a pharmacist available to you 24-7, that if you need something, if you need symptoms managed, then you'll have the opportunity to have someone right on the other end of the phone for mm-hmm. you. That um, you can you can say no to further treatment if you choose to do that, um, those type mm-hmm. things. So, yeah. Oh, are, I thought of one more thing. Oh, yeah. Maybe somebody else said it. Um, we had a physician who um, was spent a few weeks with us as a medical learner, and we were discussing really what hospice has taught us. It was during National Hospice Month, and um, what he said was, at times things, the greatest beauty we see in the end, like sunsets or the leaves on the trees in the fall, and I thought that was a beautiful hmm. statement. And I really think that if you're open to see that, that beauty is really there at end of life. So is there maybe one or two stories from your work um, where maybe maybe a, a patient you've been working with um, or something you've heard about, about this that has just kind of stuck with you and can kind of want, been one of those central, this is why I do this, or what's the, what's the one, one or two stories that really stick with you? Well, I have a few, of course, right? Um, The position that I'm in now, I don't have the opportunity to do direct patient care. And I really benefit greatly on a regular basis from other staff members coming in and telling me the stories or sharing a great experience that they've had or or in a note that a family member has sent after the death of a patient of how wonderful their experience was. And um, I can remember recently one of our patients that died at the hospice house when her daughter um, was doing her eulogy, she mentioned how her mom felt as though everybody was so nice and everybody took such good care of her and she never felt as important of a person as she did. Mm when she was a patient at the hospice house. And I just thought, wow, that's awesome. I mean, that's just wonderful that someone could feel that well cared for and that 
valued um, mm. by by our staff, and I was really I was really proud of that. Yeah, um, I had a lot of opportunity um, to be at the bedside when patients patients were dying, and I think I can remember. Well, I know I can remember a lot, but there's one in particular that I think about. Um, it was an elderly couple. The the um, wife was was dying, and the husband was by her side as as much as he could be, holding her hand. And she had been unresponsive for days. And one of the nurses that was with me in the room asked her husband if he would like to kiss her, and he just lit up like he didn't think he could. And oh. so we lifted the bed so it was at his level so he wouldn't have to bend over and dropped the side rail and he bent over and he kissed her and she responded and she had been unresponsive for days and I still kind of get a tear in my eye when I talk about it and it was so meaningful for him and and to see the patient respond and it just it meant the world to him. So that was probably one one of the most special moments that I've been able to be present with. What you described actually made me remember a time from my life when it was right after my, my grandma had died, very short-term hospice care. I mean, we're talking a couple days, right? But I remember after she died and leaving the hospital where we were at and walking into a grocery store to buy food because everybody was in town and we needed food at the house (laughs) and walking through the grocery store and just being so profoundly sad while all of life around me went on like it always does every day and just feeling like it was almost an out-of-body experience um nobody knows what i'm dealing with right now the flip side of that is that you know okay and that's 15, 16 years ago at this point. When I'm walking through the grocery store today, who else is in my shoes from back then? Uh, it's uh, it's the reality of where we are. Yeah. Well, even that comment we hear so often. Yeah. I looked out of the window and life went on like it always has, and they don't realize my life just ended. And it will the never death, be the same. And it will never be the same. Yeah. It is forever changed. Yeah. You mentioned stories, and, and that's actually the one question that we've been asking everybody. Uh, is there a story or two in particular that stick out to you that just stay on your heart and you just kind of hold on to? Uh, we had a woman in one of our groups who she did not want to go on. I mean, it was very clear. She was she was uh, so devastated by her loss. And my predecessor had used this analogy which I just had appreciated and it was you know if a bus were to fall on you today would you get out of the way no she wouldn't have gotten out of the way would you put yourself in front of that bus no oh heavens no I wouldn't mm-hmm. what are you thinking you know and right. it's just the reminder that sometimes in grief people don't want to go on and yet they they do, they do want to. Right. It's just at that moment their pain is so acute that it's difficult for them to even imagine yeah. a future. And that's part of what we can do. Not we can do. The power of group right. Um, right. or individual is really understanding 
there is a future, but it's it's a long journey. And it starts with putting one foot in front of the other each and every day. Yeah. It sounds like uh, the person that you're describing wouldn't jump in front of the bus. I wouldn't move for the bus. I'm completely paralyzed in my grief. Yes. Yeah. And I just had a beautiful email follow-up from her today, and she is moving forward, and she still has this beautiful sense of humor, and she has developed wonderful friendships, uh, and that group still gets together outside of these walls uh, to support each other, and they truly call each other friends, and that is the goal. Another story that comes to mind is... um, how quickly doors can open with music therapy, and may, maybe in an hour's time. I can think of this one person who, um, I talked to her from the hallway of her nursing home room because her bed was right by the door, and I didn't want to just barge in. So I just said, um, introduced myself and said I was the music therapist. And first thing was, um, oh, I don't, I'm not a musician, and well, I played clarinet a little bit, but no, I'm not a musician, but I like Dolly Parton, but you know, I really, I can't sing, all that. Mm -hmm. So it was just a matter of standing in the hallway and going, oh, wow, you like Dolly Parton, that's cool, and you played the clarinet. And eventually I got invited in, and I said, well, how about if I play a Dolly Parton song for you? And here's two that I know, and one of them was Coat of Many Colors, which she chose, and Mm -hmm. that's a wonderful song about Dolly Parton and her mom, her mom who sewed for her. So it's a it's a mother-daughter song. Mm-hmm. And she talked about her mom and reminisced about her mom following that song. Well, I should mention that when I first arrived, she was in a fetal position. She mm. was, And she told me she had stomach pain. So that's why I didn't enter the room right away. I didn't know if she'd really want to be visiting. So that's kind of important to the story, though. So she reminisced about her mom, and then she said, would you play Rock of Ages? I'm like, sure. And as the music therapist, I'm thinking, hmm, I have no idea where this song is going to take us. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is to her, but here we go. And so I started singing Rock of Ages, uh, which is four verses, and she started sobbing, just covering her face and sobbing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Four verses wasn't enough, so I went around the song a few more times and Mm -hmm. improvised on the song and whatnot, but just kept the music going so it could keep her in that safe place where she could cry. Um, And when she stopped crying and when she removed her hands from her face and when she took a deep breath, uh, then I stopped the music and just was quiet. And she said, you know, I'm not crying for myself, I'm crying for my kids. I I don't know how they're going to do with my death. And... This just led into deeper conversation about her worries. And so she got into talking about the worry of um, leaving her children, worries about finances and not understanding insurance and leaving that burden of the insurance with her son. And all these worries came to light. Um, So I asked her permission, is it okay if I share these with the social worker? Because I think they can help her through. Mm -hmm. They're, They're really good at insurance and... She gave me permission to do that. And then she said, you know, I, I want to choose my funeral music. And so we did that. She said, these are the songs I want, but I'm afraid of bringing it up with my family because I'm afraid that they're not ready to talk about my death. Yeah. So I said, well, here, let's make a plan. I'll bring the lyrics to these songs next time, and we'll meet with your son, and we'll just do the songs, and you'll have a little support in letting him know that this is your funeral plan. Um, And then she said, I have this other really crazy idea, and it's just that I want to leave something behind for people. I want 
I, I want my kids and my grandkids to know that I'm watching over them like a star in the sky. And I said, oh, that's so beautiful. And she goes, it's so corny, but I, I want them to know this. So um, I pulled out a song by Nancy Griffith. Uh, oh, I can't remember the name, but it's, it's a, a little light up in the sky watching mm-hmm. over you. And she said, that's perfect. I want that at my funeral. And, and then I said, can I have your permission to talk to the volunteer director? Because I think a volunteer might be able to help you create something physical that you can give that can be given away at your funeral. So in an hour's time, starting with one Dolly Parton song, mm-hmm. um, we got to the bottom of her worries. We planned her funeral music. Uh, she talked about a little legacy project that she wanted to complete before she left. Um, and she had turned over on her back and said her stomach wasn't hurting anymore. Mm. And so I just think, wow, that was great. <laughs> just an hour of, of this one-to-one love, listening, music, storytelling, trust building. Um, and we, got, we made a lot of progress in that one hour. And so that's, I guess that's a cool thing about hospice, too, is that you know that you've got a team behind you that can jump in and help this person. In, in all those different areas that they need help. But they came to light during music. And I, I just thought that was really interesting. And Dolly Parton unlocked the door. Yay for Dolly! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you just never know where it's gonna yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the great pleasures, I think. I think the next one, and I, I'm mostly just curious to ask you, I think, um, because of kind of your question at the beginning, you know, is this a, is this from a personal perspective? Is this from a work perspective? But maybe for for you, where do you or how do you see um, see a personal faith on on your behalf influencing the work you do? And maybe also, how do you see that as as helping the people that you're working with, whether that's something you share with them or not? Great question, and that's something I, I quite honestly I struggle with, right? Because I do have a faith. And yet we're supposed to be, as a a therapist, value-free, right? And we know that grief affects all of you, and part of that is your your spiritual being. And uh, some people, you know, become very angry with God, which is understandable, right? They they could have watched their their loved one die a a terribly painful death. other people who have not had a faith are seeking now. Um, some people who did have a faith just no more. You know that's done. I can't. I cannot believe in a God that would let, allow this to happen. And so, if someone opens the door, I'm able to go through. You know, and just ask questions. I mean, I cannot impose any of my beliefs, but it's hard for me when I see someone who is, maybe they're doubting the way they cared for their loved one, right? And they, they have horrible questions about, we call it unfinished business, right? The I would've, I should've, if only I could've. And that, that's kind of that infection in that wound, right? Because it's, it's something that can't be resolved now. But they have such tremendous guilt or shame surrounding that. And I, if I could just say, can I just remind you, you are made in the image of an all-loving, all-powerful, 
you know, loving God, and you have value and worth, and your life has purpose. And, you know, I do say that in other terms, you know, non-religious terms, but I've, that's a struggle for me, yeah. you know, quite honestly, to have to, to rein that in. But if, you know, now if that, if it's a person of faith and they go there, you know, sure. I can just acknowledge that. But there's so, I just, mm-hmm. it's hard for me. So maybe what have you learned about your own faith or your own spiritual journey through what you experience in your work? The more I think I know, the more I don't know. You know, personally, I believe there is an afterlife. So I, I look at death maybe differently. I, I live with a different hope than some people. And so I really do cling to that. There are things that I cannot explain. When you hear of a child or you know a painful death or something, I wish I had the answers, but I don't. So I, you know, I've learned from myself. Like I said, the more I think I know, the more I realize I don't know. But it has also made me realize life here is just a snippet. And I live my life differently because of what I hear in that room, that I want to make every day count. And I want to make sure those relationships, that nothing is left unsaid, you know, that I I really do. I think I scare my husband, though, (laughs) because I'll say, I need to know how to pay all the bills, and I need to know where all of this is. And he's like, are you going to knock me off? No, but, (laughs) you know, I just hear all these stories. So I do live life differently, but I don't want to leave things left unsaid because I know nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. I did have someone in group say, and I this resonated, how often, you know, it took her a while to be able to go out to eat by herself, right? That empty chair, you hear it's a couple's world and sitting with that empty chair is so painful. And she finally took the courage and she went out and she saw all these couples together, but on their cell phones not dialogue, dialoguing and not sharing their hearts and she just wanted to stand up in the middle of that restaurant and scream, you don't know what could happen tomorrow and value this time together, what I wouldn't give to be sitting across from my loved one. That makes you live differently. Heidi said, I want to make every day count because nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. And she shared such a powerful image, one that we've seen so many times. People all over a restaurant, heads buried in their phones, connected with people around the world and completely disconnected from the one across the table. Perhaps the takeaway, the task at hand, is to practice being present, less distracted, more in the moment. We can do this as we are living and thriving. We can do this as we or or someone we love is in the last days and dying. Maybe one of our biggest challenges is to live life at whatever stage you are in to the fullest and in real time. Not in the past, not worried about the future, but to be present now, living life in real time. Thanks for listening to part two of Life in Real Time here on the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. 
Thanks also to our friends at Seasons Hospice for teaching us and sharing their stories. Coming up in a couple weeks, we'll be sharing some of the voices and conversations we had on the big sandbox cooperative road trip, a sort of overview of the week. We'll introduce you to some fascinating people and share some of the big ideas and themes we learned from them. It was great to hear from so many of you last week as we traveled around the country. We saw the sandbox community growing with everyone we met and every time you all shared and connected with us through social media. Let's keep it going. Sign up for our email updates via our website, connect with us through Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Most importantly, share this podcast with someone who might like it. There is always more room in the sandbox. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. 